Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. Monday the 13th of August with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Legislation allowing for abortion is to be introduced next year. The Irish Times reports that the government will not legislate until three legal challenges have had their objections ruled on by the courts. The Minister for Health could look at introducing interim measures by making some changes to the law this year before making abortion available in 2019. What's almost certain, though, is that Simon Harris will bring forward legislation to the Dáil and that Fine Gael TD in Louth, Peter Fitzpatrick, will vote against the government. Last week, Fitzpatrick informed Fine Gael that he will not be seeking a nomination to run for the party in the next general election. Sarah Barton, political correspondent with the Irish Times, is on the line. And Sarah, I take it that Peter Fitzpatrick could decide to join forces with with Ronan Mullen and others to form an anti-abortion alliance or decide to stand as an independent? Good morning, Michael. Yeah, I think that's the question, I suppose, that most people are asking now of Peter Fitzpatrick. It didn't necessarily come as a, a huge shock to anybody to see Peter Fitzpatrick depart from Fine Gael in the last number of months, particularly on the issue of abortion. the abortion legislation. There has been a distance between Peter and the rest of his parliamentary party. And, you know, while the referendum uh, result returned a very decisive victory for the yes, side, you know, Peter Fitzpatrick had always maintained that he wouldn't be in a position to support the legislation. So even those within the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party who you know, were not in favour of a yes vote, who advocated a no vote, accepted the decision of the people and said that they would support the legislation. And Peter was a little bit different than that, sort of aligning himself with the likes of Matthew McGrath um, and Ronan Mullen, who's you know, who have said quite clearly that they wouldn't be able to uh, support any such legislation in any circumstances. So there was that bit of distance between Peter and the rest of the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party. And as you and I both know, in 2016, he had wavered at the prospect of running uh, in that general election. So I think it came as no great shock to anyone to see him depart from Fine Gael. But I think the question now is whether or not he will stand as an independent candidate or whether he will align himself with... You know, there are two anti-abortion groups that are, are, mm. are being formed... Ronan Mullen is uh, reforming his own party uh, and uh, Matthew McGrath and Michael Collins um, are forming some sort of an alliance, an anti-abortion alliance, although the plans for both seem to be uh, very premature. So whether Peter will stand as an independent or join those forces remains to be seen. I mean, I am one of a few journalists who tried to contact him over the last couple of days since the announcement was made and haven't been able to get any clarity on those particular points. Okay, and uh, the three are like-minded to some degree, given that the three sat 
sat on uh, the committee uh, that looked at uh, the future of uh, the Eighth uh, Amendment uh, and uh, the referendum uh, and had their alternative report, that is Ronan Mullen, Matty McGrath and Peter Fitzpatrick. Yeah, well, Peter, I suppose, was um, was was a member of the Oireachtas Committee on the Eighth Amendment. And although though there were others on that committee within Fine Gael who perhaps weren't as supportive as uh, of the proposals from the committee, um, Peter was a lone voice with regard in with regards to Fine Gael. I mean, he was the person who launched the um, minority report with Matthew McGrath and Ronan Mullen. And even though people like Bernard Durkin um, and Hildegard Nocton, two TDs who entered the committee process. Uh, defining themselves as pro-life and, and potential no voters, they posted a 360 and ended up advocating very strongly a yes vote. So Peter, I suppose, was was uh, was kind of a little bit out on a limb with regards to the rest of the Fine Gael Parliamentary mm. Party. And even though there were people within Fine Gael who didn't support the proposition, they weren't as vocal as Peter. And I think that's where I suppose maybe where Peter had found it a little bit difficult because a lot of people within Fine Gael supported what he was advocating but weren't as public with um, with their opposition to the abortion referendum as he was. So mm. he had aligned himself to um, Massey and Ronan on the Oireachtas Committee and I suppose then was seen in, in in that light, you know, I know he did a re- he did an in depth interview with you uh, at the time of the, just before the uh, referendum mm. uh, was took place, and he yeah. went through his various various things. But mm. so he was really one of the only Finnegale TDs to do that, even though there were a significant number of them who didn't. Yeah, I, I, I'm very very mindful of that interview this morning, and can't help but think back uh, to a bizarre situation that I don't think anybody outside of the radio station is aware of, because uh, on the same day we had Simon Harris, the Minister for Health, scheduled to speak to us uh, and of course he was asking people to repeal the Eighth Amendment and Peter Fitzpatrick uh, had agreed uh, prior to a request that came to us from the Minister's office to speak to us in order to ask people to retain the Eighth Amendment. So we had Peter Fitzpatrick on at a quarter past nine and at half past nine the Minister uh, said he would be available to us uh, but you know the way the Minister's schedule is, he was on a really tight time frame and had to be on at half nine and gone at 20 to 10 or something like that. So we had Peter Fitzpatrick gone uh, and whilst Peter Fitzpatrick was talking on the radio, Finnegan Press Office was ringing the radio station going, um, I, I didn't know you had Peter Fitzpatrick gone. What's all this about? Uh, so anyway, Peter was here and it suited him to stay because uh, it was a relatively short interview so that we could make time for the minister to come on. The minister came on uh, and then went off about his business and Peter Fitzpatrick came back on and the Finnegan Press Office was ringing us again going, why are you having him on again? Has the minister not got a right to reply to all of this? It really was bizarre stuff and I did wonder at the time, was there trouble? Yeah, I think I remember that interview with Peter. I, um, I, I didn't know he came back on after the minister because I'd listened to the two of them. But I remember at the time thinking you were putting a very a lot of... Um, you know, very emotive questions to be sure at the time about abortions and the cases of rape and so forth. And you weren't necessarily getting very clear answers. And then I suppose the Minister for Health came on and was very clear and decisive in what he was putting forward. And maybe Peter felt the necessity to come back on after the Minister had spoken. I suppose, as I said, you know, even though Peter was uh, not a lone voice within Fine Gael, he was a lone public voice. So even though, you know, like if I think of the top of my head, people like Kieran Cannon from Galway, people like Patrick O'Donovan from Limerick, senators like Paul Coughlin, all these people had the exact same concerns as Peter, but they weren't willing to put themselves above uh, above the parapet and put their name to to a no vote, even though that was what they strongly believed in. So I think Peter found that, found that very difficult, you know, to, to know that there were other 
others within the parliamentary party who shared his conviction and shared his concerns on this particular issue but weren't willing to stand mm. alongside him and I, I I know from I suppose just seeing the kind of body language within Leinster House I definitely felt like he maybe wasn't as happy as he as he normally is because as you know him he's very chirpy and he's you know he's very enthusiastic and energetic and I did notice that that probably that was wavering a little bit um, over the la- over the last couple of months but I think you know there be it, it will be really interesting to see whether or not he'd be willing to put himself forward as an independent or to join those um, anti-abortion groups as we spoke about earlier because um, I suppose in 2016 he did waver and it looked like he didn't necessarily want to continue to um, be a politician but he, he made that jump and whether or not now he he will decide to continue on this path or maybe take a step back um, you know will be will be quite important mm-hmm. and I think within Within Loud, there will obviously uh, be people who will align themselves to what Peter uh, advocated for in the referendum. And, you know, they won't necessarily find a natural home um, with any other, uh, apart from Fianna Fáil TD, Declan Brannock. You know, the majority of other the other candidates who will represent, or who will fight for a seat in Loud would have advocated a yes vote. So perhaps, mm. you know, it could stand to be very beneficial to, to Peter if he does stand as an anti-abortion candidate. And do you expect that he will stand? It's really hard to it's really hard mm. to know because he has gone to ground um, over the last couple of days, and I think that maybe he's himself weighing up the options as to whether or not it's worth the fight. Um, I would I would imagine there's a lot of pressure coming on him um, from people you know from people within the anti-abortion lobby group um, who I suppose would have placed a lot of pressure on him with in in the Oireachtas committee recommendations and indeed in the weeks afterwards, and I think people are. Excuse me. That as the election gets nearer and nearer, there is a lot of pressure on people to identify themselves as anti-abortion candidates in a general election, and to uh, and to stand under a banner of Matthew McGrath or Ronan Mullen, whichever they choose. So I, I think there's probably a lot of pressure coming on him. I'm not sure if he's with, if he, if he will do it. Mm. I would expect that he would, but I, uh, again, you know, I don't have I don't have any great insights uh, into Peter's thinking at the minute, but. I would imagine that there is a great, great deal of pressure being being borne on him. I suppose none of us have any great insight into Peter's thinking at the moment, uh, but I, I think it's probably true to say that you bring uh, a very insightful perspective perspective to all of this, uh, because uh, readers of the Irish Times would give great weight to Sarah Barden's political analysis. Uh, but apart from that, uh, this is your home county. Uh, yeah, well, Louth is my is my home county, an RD woman, so um, I know the constituency probably better than most people within the Irish Times or within Leinster House. So yeah, it's it's one. Of, but you know, it's actually really interesting the weather because Louth is going to be a great barometer for the next general election, and it's really exciting to know the constituency mm. in the way that I do because obviously we have Jerry Adams standing aside as a TV. Yep. So will Sinn Fein be able to pick up two seats? You know, it's difficult to see how they will um, because Jerry Adams was just such a a vote getter, he was a celebrity and, you know, even, um, I suppose, people who wouldn't necessarily have lined themselves with Sinn Féin would have maybe given him a transfer because he was Jerry Adams. So Jerry Adams will stand aside and Imelda Munster um, will take the take the lead as the lead Sinn Féin candidate. Then you have whether uh, Fine Gael can make, retain the two seats. You know, Fergus O'Dowd is obviously there and Councillor John McGahan has now indicated he wants to stand for the party. Um, can they retain their two seats or can Fianna Fáil get another seat in the constituency? So, 
And also then we have the Labour Party. You know, Jed mm. Nash, Senator, who's been working really hard in the ground. Well, he managed to get a seat back for the Labour Party. And actually, if you look at it, it could potentially be a barometer for what the national trend will be. So if Fianna Fáil can get two seats, does that mean that Fianna Fáil will be the largest party next time round? Or will Fine Gael retain their two seats? Mm. And is that a, a sign as to how big Fine Gael well, is? Well, that's it. I mean, it, it, traditionally, it's a, a Fianna Fáil stronghold. Absolutely, you know, it's mm. always been the case that Fianna Fáil have been very strong in, in Louth um, and I think, you know, that that's the constituency that they'll be working particularly hard on to get a second seat alongside Declan Brannock but as well, I think for the Labour Party Louth will be a really crucial mm. uh, constituency because that is, a, that is a constituency where they could potentially make gains. So, yeah, well, I think everybody in Labour was very disappointed last time round that Jed Nash uh, didn't do it on the day and somewhere very surprised possibly the two Finnegale candidates that he didn't either uh, and that uh, Finnegale brought two home. Yeah, I think had you asked most people prior to the 2016 general election, they would have said, um, you know, Fine Gael would have retained one seat and that Labour would have retained one seat, even though Labour were facing, you know, quite a quite a slaughter in the in the polls. People would have expected Jed to retain his seat, and when it when he didn't, it showed, you know, exactly what was coming for the Labour Party across mm. the country. But for Labour, when they look at it, they, you know, if they look at their seven seats now, um, potentially they will lose one in Longford Westmead with the departure of Willie Penrose and so they need people like Jed in Loud and people in uh, like Aon or Reardon in Dublin Bay North to gain seats for them in order in order for them to make any progression because if it if it turns around in the next general election whenever that may be that they don't gain in Loud Dublin Bay North and these Clare is another one another key constituencies like this then it will be a very you know, mm. another bad election for the Labour Party and that will obviously spell concerns for them um, for their future. So Laird is actually, really, not just because I'm from yeah. there, but it's actually oh, a really exciting yeah. constituency and, to, to watch. And listen, Sarah, Fergus O'Dowd set to speak to us in the next few minutes and I imagine the question he's asking himself is if Jerry Adams canvasses with Imelda Munster and manages to bring home a second candidate and Jed Nash is re-elected and Peter Fitzpatrick stands as an independent and gets elected, is his seat at risk? Look, I think Fergus uh, has always, I suppose, you know, he's always booked any Fine Gael trend. He's always, I suppose, performed well in the polls. But I do think this is an election like no other, because as you said, if Peter does stand as an independent candidate and he does advocate an anti-abortion message, people will resonate with that message. And as I said, Fergus, Jed, Imelda, Jerry Adams, they all advocated a yes vote in the referendum. And perhaps those people who don't feel now they're naturally aligned with those two may find a home with Peter Fitzpatrick or indeed any uh, other anti-abortion candidate like Declan Brannock uh, for that matter. Um, I think Fine Gael will need to retain two seats in uh, in Loud if they are to if they are to become the largest party um, in the next in the next stall. And I think Leo Varadkar will be putting a lot of emphasis on Loud. But I suppose the difficulty for them is um, Peter Fitzpatrick was well known within the constituency, not just because obviously he was a parliamentarian, but also he was for the. Le- Former Loud manager who led the uh, who led the Loud team to Leinster final only for it to be grabbed so cruelly away from uh, Meath. But mm. I suppose people would have had a bit of an affection for P- for Peter um, for that, you know, and he would have probably he proved to be quite trans- transfer friendly on that basis. So for Fine Gael, they need to, they need to retain their two seats, and if it does look like Fianna Fáil or Sinn Féin for that matter can get two seats in the constituency, then that could potentially put uh, Fine Gael in a bit of difficulty. But there will all, I think there will be a seat 
uh, for Fine Gael in in uh, the next in the next the next time round. I just mm-hmm. suppose okay. whether the whether Fine Gael vote will go to Peter Fitzpatrick or whether will, will, will go to uh, Fergus O'Dowd. Yeah, well, that's the question, isn't it? Uh, and uh, if it is Peter Fitzpatrick, that could put Fine Gael uh, at risk. Uh, it's all ahead of us, and it could be sooner than some would like. Uh, and uh, I'm sure, as always is uh, the case with these things, uh, too soon as far as some are concerned. We leave there for the moment, though, Sarah. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us here this morning, Sarah Barden, political correspondent for the Irish Times. Michael Reed on LMFM. Fergus O'Dowd, you have had the opportunity to speak to Peter Fitzpatrick. What has he said to you? Yes, indeed. No, I rang Peter on Saturday. He was at a meeting. He texted me and he rang me back when the meeting was over. And I wished him well. I hadn't obviously uh, anticipated what he that he wasn't going to run for Fine Gael. And he wished me well as well. So we had a pleasant, and uh, as we always have, a pleasant exchange. Mm. And we didn't go into the politics of it, but I, you know, we, we both wish each other well. And I think that's proper and appropriate, having worked together for two general elections. It's the only time Fine Gael won two seats was with Peter and myself. And, and as uh, I said earlier on, it was yeah. to the surprise of some at least. It was, yeah. And I mean, in the last election, we won two seats uh, with less than 20% of the vote. It was a unique, special work that Peter and I did and the loud people supported us. And that's that was exceptionally clear at the last election. And mm. we're very happy for that, obviously. Now Peter won't be on our team. So obviously, clearly, what he does is his business. But the party is going ahead with our convention on Thursday week. So we'll see what comes out of that. Uh, and what's your expectation? Do you expect Peter Fitzpatrick to be an opponent in the next well, election? Well, well, I mean, that's a matter for Peter. That mm. is absolutely his decision if he makes that. And he did say in his statement to the papers that he would be making a speech a statement after consulting his family yeah. and, and other people, I think, is the way he worded it. And that's it. So I think it would be inappropriate for me to say anything until we know exactly what Peter is doing. Mm. But we are we are obviously... I'm sad that Peter has gone because he was a very good colleague. He worked very, very hard. He, he's a, you know, he, he was always in good humour. He's a person you can always talk to. And he also listened. So, like, I have great respect for Peter. Let's get to the crunch question. Sure, I of course, told yeah. Sarah Barton I'd ask you <laughs> if course, you were yeah. worried that your seat might be at risk. Well, everybody's seat's at risk. I mm. mean, there's no, there's no guarantee that anybody's mm. ever going to get into the doll. And it's not getting into the doll is the name of the game to say. It's not getting in, it's staying in. Mm. So, the question is, you know, everybody has to work extremely hard. I've been working very, very hard. Uh, We've made a lot of progress in County Loud. We Mm. have the two major towns included in our 2040 plan, the first time that has ever happened. The DART is coming to Drogheda. There's going to be an extension, I expect, of the railway line in terms of railway mm. services. Between Maybe you, 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 you might end up reading about this in the newspaper, though, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, but, but there is. Yeah. But, like, I mean, so, so we've I made mean, a lot of progress. Yeah. There's a lot more to be done. Mm. And I think that, I think that certainly, uh, you know, this government, we've had practically, we've had the Taoiseach, the Minister for Finance, mm. the Minister for Employment. Uh, uh, you know, we've had the Minister for Arts here. We've had the Minister for Housing here. We've had ministers here practically every mm, month. And, um, and, and they are paying attention. As yeah. Sarah says, yes, Loud is getting a lot of attention from Fine Gael, and yes, you know, we hope to win our two seats. It's not going to be easy, but we're going to have to do it, as Sarah says. But we've it, got to get back it, into it, government. If Peter Fitzpatrick runs as an independent, you won't expect to win two seats. I think we will win two You'll seats. You'll be lucky to win one, won't you? Well, I, I think we will win. Well, I mean, that's a matter for mm. the public to decide, yeah. and obviously we can't ever second guess them. And obviously, do you think Sinn Fein will be weakened this time round because of Jerry Adams' decision not to stand? I honestly don't know the answer to that. Mm. I know that Imelda Munster certainly in the South is working extremely mm. hard and 
I know they're a very good candidate. And I'm sure Jerry Adams will um, be out knocking on doors and so of course, on. And, of course, yeah. yes. But he won't be mm. the only one knocking on doors. I'll be mm. knocking on doors as mm. well. And it, like, it, I mean, it, you know... It, 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 if Sinn yeah. Féin take sure. two seats and Peter yeah. Fitzpatrick takes a third, right. uh, then you'd have to assume there's at least one Fianna Fáil seat. There could be two. Yeah. And Jed Nash is coming up close behind you. Well, I'm never asleep, Michael, mm. as you know. No, I know. But yeah, I mean, no, no, I'm just making yeah, a point. That, that I mean, that, that's one scenario. Yeah, but the other yeah. scenario I'll give you is that we are, we are totally focused. We have been focused as a party mm. in the county. Uh, obviously, clearly, we have to make sure that we win the two seats and everything I have done and everything I will do will be, mm. uh, will be aimed at that. In terms of my own personal work, uh, I'm very focused at this moment in time on issues in relation to nursing home reform. Mm. Uh, there'll be huge issues in that very shortly. But do you think this is going to be a dirty election? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, I don't think... I, well, I mean, every election, if people want to to fight below the belt, that's fine. Mm. We, I don't do that. I've never done it. I'm not going to do it okay, now. Do you think it's going to be a tough election? Now every election is tough. The last yeah. one was extremely mm. tough. We mm. were a very unpopular government. But the, the situation has changed radically now because obviously employment in County Loud has grown mm. immensely and uh, there's a huge... There's an awful lot more people what working about, than what there about, were. Housing is a big issue. What about a third of the people listening to us now, a third <coughs> of the population right. of the constituency who didn't want legislation for abortion, who didn't yes, want to repeal the Eighth yeah, Amendment? And absolutely, and that was their honest and sincere opinion. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and Peter, I respect Peter, that. Peter Fitzpatrick is going to look to represent them. Uh, of course, yes. Here. Well, I would hope uh, to represent them as well. I mean, do you... Do, do, I, do, I would do, hope to represent them as well because mm. I think that I think that the issue has been dealt with. The, the, the people have decided... Nationally on this issue, and that's the, the debate. As far as I'm concerned, has been a very sincere debate. Mm. It was very do, well do, conducted, do, 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 but it do is over. You, you don't. Think, it, you don't really think it's over. But I do, do Michael. I mean, do you not expect? Seven, do you not expect to be in here debating it with Peter? Uh, I, I don't have a problem debating. It'll be the legislation we'll be talking mm. about. I don't have an issue with that. I don't have an issue with protecting women uh, and their health. I don't have an issue with supporting that Irish women should never go to England. Yeah, but uh, it, Michael, I want to make this point. I, I absolutely say they should mm. never have to go to England I, 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 and no, I will I vote to ensure that they can I'm have sure belief, but my, you, my, I, I want to make it very clear mm. that that is not just my belief it's the belief of almost a, 70% yes, of it, this it, constituency. It, but it's not my question my question yeah. it relates <clears throat> to the person who may end up representing the 30%. But I represent and, them as well because uh, And, 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 and yeah. will you debate these issues? Your of course. Beliefs, I'm, very, that, that I'm very happy to be there and I mean if we were but, having a debate on the yeah. merits of it obviously of I'd be more than happy to give. I accept that Michael. But, but my question is, are, are, are well, you going to sit you down now? with uh, uh, your former or your current uh, Fine Gael my, my current colleague, yeah. and go at each other head to Well, I think we certainly debate the issue. I have no issue with that mm. at all. And the other point I want to make is I want to make this very clear, that people who voted for or against the issue mm. in the referendum, uh, they didn't do that on a political party basis. They did it because that's what they believed in on that issue. Mm. But I believe I can represent people who voted yes and no in that referendum uh, because they will be looking at the political issues. Mm. The other issue is actually decided. The legislation will pass. So we have to make sure as a party, obviously, that we address all mm. of the issues. And most of the people in Fine Gael, I think uh, Nashia can be corrected mm. on this, I think something like 78% of the Fine Gael party members vote for the change. So I would say that at that debate, you know, that, that, so, that uh, Fine Gael voters support the issue. So, but so if Peter Fitzpatrick uh, is Michael, appealing yeah. to pro-life Fine Gael supporters, you believe you'll win that vote? Uh, well, I'm not even saying that. I, I, I'm not, I wouldn't presume that. What I'm saying is that I can appeal 
to everybody. And if I might, for instance... Well, you can't on that issue. No, no Nobody can no, on No, but on the election, Michael. Yeah. What I mean is mm. on the yeah, election. I know, I understand. But regardless it, of how you voted mm, on mm. it, uh, you will move to the other issues as well. And that is a very important issue, but it's been decided. You move mm. to the economy, you yeah. move to jobs, you mm. move to and transport, you move to care, Peter 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 you move to housing. And Peter Fitzpatrick is in here saying, look, I'll support Fine Gael on all of those issues. Yeah. Because, you know, I have Fine Gael in my blood. Yeah. But I'll fight them on the abortion issue. Yeah. Uh, well, then surely the pro-life side of Fine Gael will look to yeah. Peter Fitzpatrick to represent well, them. Well, well, the only point that I would make about Peter wasn't how he voted in the referendum. It was, was that he voted against having a referendum at all. There was a small minority. Mm. I think it was, I haven't got the exact figure, there was 10 people in the doll who said they, they didn't want the people to decide this issue and I disagree profoundly with him on that and on the other people who spoke like that but I welcome people who voted for and against and I mean it's in every party, it's in Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Labour, mm. Sinn Féin uh, people voted on either side of this but they're all working together but, now w- w- When did you find out uh, that Peter Fitzpatrick wasn't when I heard it When I heard it, uh, I, think on the, I can't remember On the radio, on the radio yes uh, yeah, yeah. That, that sounds like a Oh, it's a fact. Re- yeah, but it sounds like a questionable relationship. Well, I mean... It sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like sour relations. Well, uh, no, I, not I, at all, Michael. Not uh, at all. No, no, no. I made it clear mm. to you that, that uh, I rang Peter on Saturday. He te- I can show you the text. Oh, no, no, but it is No, but it is truth. And I wished him well, mm. and I do wish him well, and I've, we've always, notwithstanding the fact that we would compete for votes, and that's absolutely true, mm. and if it happens again, it happens again, but I do respect him, and I always have, and I always will, mm. and that's at, and I would say, in fairness, he's always treated me extremely well and respectfully. Mm. But there as was well. a, a selection convention last Thursday, wasn't there? No, no, that's next. Uh, okay. Sorry, it's Thursday mm-hmm. week. But yeah. the names were nominated last Thursday. Uh, well, well, he had to. Dis- you see, sorry, that's uh, that's how I found out. Excuse me. By nine by nine p.m. Mm. Uh, last Thursday, uh, Peter he was nominated. I have been told that he had been nominated before then, before the 9pm, and then I, 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 the best person to talk to is a party spokesperson, but mm. as I understand it, he informed them bef- just before 9pm that he wouldn't be standing. Mm. And, and after that then... And then there was a tweet happened, and so yeah. on. Do you think yeah. there were forces within Fine Gael working against Peter Fitzpatrick? No, I don't. Not I mean, you heard the yeah. little story I told about the press office and the communication that they had. Well, I'm sure they were off not about me as well, oh. Michael, in the past. <laughs> Tell me, I'm sure they were. Particularly when the Kelly was leader, I've known that. <laughs> they were ringing up, get that fella off. Uh, so, I mean, the press office are the press office, uh, and they, they do what they're instructed to do at times. Sometimes they just respond. But, like, you know, you have to be a politician. You have to be yourself. You say what you think. Otherwise, you may as well not be there. You know, uh, that's what I think, Michael. <laughs> anyway. God, it sounds um, as though uh, you, you question the integrity of the spin doctors. Well, I think spin doctors are spin doctors. Like, they play a tune and they, they, you know, they're told what to play. So, the Gael spin doctors. Every then. spin doctor, Michael. Uh, but mm. every politician has worked their salt are who they are. I am who I am mm. and I'm not going to change. And whatever happens, happens. I always follow my conscience just mm. like Peter and I end up where I am. And, when, I'm, and I can live with that. When, when, when do you believe uh, the next general election is going to be? I'd say I, it could be very soon or yeah. it could be it could, I wouldn't be surprised if it ha- if it happened before Christmas uh, either, but it depends obviously if Fianna Fáil and uh, Fianna Gael decide and there was a strong wind there about uh, saying that a snap election wouldn't mm. solve any the housing problem. You know yourself, I think Peter Fitzpatrick is listening to us now and he's, I do- know Peter, he, yeah, well, he's well, dusting he, off these new well, posters. Put him on, put him on, put oh, him on. Oh, he's been invited. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah. And we will hear from him very and soon. I, and I respect 
respect yeah. that. I respect uh, and I'm sure he's dusting off the new posters well, uh, and hoping to put them up in the autumn. Well, 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 more power to him. You know, I mean, that's we live in a democracy. Everybody can compete. Everybody can challenge. Mm-hmm. And may the best man and woman win, whatever. All right, listen, thanks for coming into us. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much thanks. indeed. Finnegale TD for Loud. He's one of the two TDs in Loud that Finnegale have at the moment. Fergus <laughs> down. thank you. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. There was absolute outrage uh, last week when people saw the photographs of uh, Margaret Cash and six of her seven children sleeping on plastic chairs in Telegarda Station last Wednesday. And that picture may have painted a thousand words, but it also depicted uh, the reality of life for hundreds of families in this country as we heard last week sleeping in a guard station is nothing new. This morning we're reading that 30 families were referred to two guard stations in the month of April alone by Focus Ireland and 29 in the month of May. Peter McVerry, Jesuit priest who works with homeless people is on the line with us this morning. Good morning to you Peter and thanks for joining us. Uh, It's understandable that when people saw the reality of uh, the situation in the photographs that uh, they were very moved, uh, disturbed and angered by them, but it is an ongoing reality for so many people. It is. It's a regular uh, occurrence now these days that families go to guard the stations and sometimes have to stay in the guard the station overnight. The difference in this case is the photographs. The photographs went viral on social media and created the outrage that uh, really we should be feeling uh, for the last uh, good few months now because this is is happening on an almost nightly basis at this stage. It, the, I mean, the, what happened was shocking, uh, but it's not surprising. There is a huge dearth of accommodation for homeless people and for homeless families. Mm. And in my view, it's going to only get worse. Why so? There's two events coming down the road. Uh, first of all, there are 43,000 mortgages in arrears of more than two years. And the European Central Bank is putting pressure on the Irish banks to get rid of them. And as we saw, 10,000 of them were sold to a vulture fund recently. Mm. Many of those are going to be repossessed. Many others are going to be sold to vulture funds. And subsequently, the family is going to be evicted. And that could create an avalanche of homelessness, uh, which we would not be able to cope with. The second is Brexit. With Brexit, two things may happen. One, we could have hundreds, if not thousands, of employees relocating to Ireland, mainly to Dublin, Mm. and they'll be looking for accommodation in the private rented sector, which is where most homeless people have to look for accommodation, and they could get squeezed out. And secondly, after Brexit, there could be many EU nationals who would normally have gone to England Uh, may no longer be able to get in, may feel unwelcome, and they may choose to come to the only other English-speaking country, uh, Ireland, and and that could create a crisis of accommodation as well. Or maybe there at the moment and move here, as uh, the case may be. But if you take the distressed mortgages and what happened at permanent TSB, uh, a lot of uh, the people in arrears have been in arrears for three and a half years uh, and have done nothing uh, to engage with PTSB since they went into arrears, uh, they could be described as squatters. Uh, Is it not possible that this could be part of the solution if they're moved out of those homes that people like Margaret Cash could be given one of them? Well, what's going to happen if they're moved out, the banks own the homes, the homes are going to be sold, 
uh, and they're going to be sold at as high a price as possible and they're going to be available to people who are on reasonably high incomes. They're not going to be available as social housing. Uh, so, unfortunately, that would not benefit the Margaret Cashes of, of this world. Uh, of those who are in arrears, I mean, we have to we have to really ask why people, why some people. It's a tiny minority who have not engaged for many mm. years. But we need to ask the question why. I mean, if you think of a bank with its highly paid lawyers coming up against a, a family who have no legal background, the family feels totally. Uh, uh, intimidated can be the only word I can use, and they simply uh, bury their head in the sand because they can't face uh, the prospect of attending court uh, on a regular basis, being uh, up against highly paid lawyers. So there may be good reasons why families have uh, have, have have not uh, engaged. Of course, we encourage everybody to engage. Uh, but uh, I think families can feel very, very powerless in the face of uh, of powerful banks who are who are seeking to repossess their homes. You've spent a, a lifetime uh, working uh, with people in uh, situations that have led to them being homeless or in a crisis looking for accommodation, as the case may be. And whilst you campaign tirelessly for the homeless as a priest, how do you feel, Peter McVerry, about the papal visit and what we're hearing about homeless people being moved out of hotels and B&Bs to make way for paying visitors? Well, I'm hoping that won't happen. Uh, if it does happen, it's because of greed, because the hotels can get tourists and charge them a higher rate than they're charging the local authority. I, I would be horrified if that actually happened, but it would be perhaps a reflection of what's going on in our society. It's money that rules. It's money that's determining all the decisions that are being made in our society. Uh, and so uh, if that happens, I, I think it would be... Uh, it would just be a reflection of the fact that our society now is uh, is is, uh, is is being dictated to by by those who have the most money. What is of bigger concern to me, possibly, is those who become homeless during the few days of the Pope's visit, uh, and there just may be no accommodation for them. Or Dublin, the regional housing executive has said they will be re- they will be housed outside Dublin. But even that's going to create a problem unless transport is provided to and from the accommodation outside Dublin. So I would be afraid that uh, families who become homeless during those one or two days may very, very well end up in Guards' stations. Were you encouraged uh, by the humanity of uh, the Guards and how uh, representatives uh, spoke publicly about this, uh, telling us uh, that the Guardian and Tala bought Margaret and her children breakfast last Thursday morning and that this isn't uncommon and that they're not trained, it's an inappropriate setting and that it has to stop? I think it's a great credit to the Gardaí that they did that. They're dealing with uh, sometimes crisis situations. They're dealing with people who are drunk, uh, coming into the station very agitated. They're dealing with people who have, they have arrested coming in, who may be quite uh, antagonistic and, and create a fuss. Uh, so it, it's great that they were able to and did give the time to, to look after this family. And as I say, that's happening in Garda stations on a regular basis these nights. Uh, it is it is a great credit to them that they did that 
And they were perfectly right mm. to go on the airwaves and complain that they should not have to do that. They weren't doing, they weren't complaining out of a lack of compassion. They were complaining because of compassion, because they know this is not an appropriate response to homeless families. We could line up uh, experts on housing uh, from here to Cork and one after the other could give us uh, opinions and statistics on ways to solve uh, the crisis. Uh, But there's one element that's essential, isn't there? And that's the will, the political will to solve this. There is. I mean, the solutions have been proposed, but they're quite radical. First of all, it's we've got to go back to building social housing on a massive scale, as we did in the 70s and the 80s. This reliance on the private market and particularly the private rented sector to provide social housing has been a dismal failure. And the continuing reliance in the government strategy on homelessness to rely on the private sector is uh, is doomed uh, to failure. But the you government know, the, says it's not failing. Uh, I, I mean, I know the statistics speak well, for themselves, and I'm not arguing the point with you. They're just saying, give us time to uh, prove uh, the prudence of what we're doing. Well, I mean, the government strategy was introduced uh, just over two years ago. <laughs> And initially they said, give us time for the strategy to work. And I was quite happy to give them time for the strategy to work. But here we are two years later (laughs) Mm. and the number of homeless people continues to go up. They promised that that strategy would would, uh, result in no families uh, are very few families being placed in hotels, commercial hotels, uh, as an emergency response. Uh, That was for last July. A year later, we have more families in commercial hotels than we had in last July when it was Mm. supposed to have been ended. The only criterion by which we can judge the effectiveness of the government strategy is are the number of homeless people and families going down? And the answer is no, no. they're going up mm. every, every month. Yeah, we've over 10,000 now uh, who are homeless in this country. Uh, and I mean, that's shocking, yeah. it's shocking. I remember about five or six years ago, mm. uh, I made a statement that there was a tsunami of homelessness coming down the road. And the figure I used was 5,000. Mm. <laughs> and I was ridiculed and said, don't be ridiculous, mm. you're scaremongering, you're... you're uh, uh, and here we have now 10,000 people who are home. Okay, well, people put great weight in what you have to say. Uh, what can you advise people here? Because, I mean, this is beyond most of us. Uh, what can we do to change this? I think it's a political problem and it has to be uh, dealt with politically. So I think we have to express our outrage uh, publicly and privately and to our TVs, express our outrage that this is no longer acceptable in this, the fifth wealthiest country in the world, according to the IMF, in a country which has the fastest growing economy in the EU. This is no longer acceptable today in in Ireland. Okay, Peter McVerry, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Lots of interesting responses to the story about Peter Fitzpatrick not running for Fine Gael in the next election. Jim from Dundalk says, is this not a bit of history repeating itself because it happened before and then Peter changed his mind. Who's to say he won't change his mind again? Well, 
Fingal, I think the Finnegal party rules say <laughs> that he cannot change his mind at this stage uh, because he has uh, not been nominated. Uh, so uh, he will not be a candidate for Finnegal, it would seem, uh, come the next election, whenever that might be. Seamus says that Finnegal won two seats the last time because of the popularity of Peter Fitzpatrick and thinks it will be hard to repeat this again. Yeah, well, there might be two. Finnegale seats as such in the county. Uh, some would say uh, you're lucky to get two. There could only be one. Mm. Uh, but uh, I think people will be looking at Peter Fitzpatrick as a, a Finnegale candidate or an independent Finnegale candidate. So the question is, is there a seat for Fergus O'Dowd or not? Well, it's going to be very interesting mm. because also then you know, the sideshow to this is who is going to get that nomination, of course. And already there's lots of councillors um, currently who are in that mm. mix. I believe, I think the six uh, you know, you have John McGann, who was already declared. And then I think there's Maria Doyle, Dolores Minogue, Sharon Tolan, mm. Colin Markey, Paddy Mead, all great cancers. Oh, yeah, so, they're all, all great. But yes. I, I mean, this really is a, a question, I think, of uh, will it be Fitzpatrick and O'Dowd or will it be just Fitzpatrick <laughs> yes. or will it be just O'Dowd? I know. Well, we'll know when he makes this statement mm. that's, that's forthcoming whenever that does arrive. Oh, well, I, I think it, you can take it as a, a given that Peter Fitzpatrick will be running in the next general yeah. election. The question is, will it be as an independent or will he join a political yes. party or will uh, he be part of some uh, alliance uh, that's uh, opposing abortion legislation? Uh, but uh, time will tell. But I, I'd be very surprised if he, he's not going to be standing in the election. I would too, mm. because when I read that statement... That that's the first thing I thought because I, I did think as the listener said there that it was quite telling the way it was written that he wouldn't be running as a Fine Gael candidate mm. you know so we'll watch this space Michael but Tom his thoughts on it says that, uh, that that Peter Fitzpatrick said in a statement he wouldn't be running for Fine Gael and Tom is saying that that suggests to him that Peter Fitzpatrick may still run. Sean from Drada says he admires Peter Fitzpatrick because he stood by his beliefs on the abortion referendum and is sorry to see him go from mm. Fine Gael. He thinks that the Fine Gael party needs people like him, needs people who have a mix of views. Mm. Well, they don't have him anyway, he would no, say. No. Uh, I'm not sure about his membership, but I imagine uh, that that's a, a matter of time. Emma says, I really hope Peter runs again. He will be missed in Dundalk and Louth. I called into Peter's office and met with Peter over an issue I was having. I couldn't believe all that he did for me. I will never forget Peter and I do wish him well on whatever decision he makes. Okay, yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah, and we'll hear what that decision is, hopefully in the coming days. Uh, and uh, we look forward uh, to hearing it directly from uh, Deputy Fitzpatrick himself on the programme. Just a final comment on this. Mary yeah. phoned in and she says that if Peter Fitzpatrick Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
was an independent. Fine Gael, she feels, will definitely struggle to win two seats. She felt that it it was the combination of the location and the popularity of the two candidates that brought in those votes and brought the two of them in the last time. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, he could be uh, talking to Lucinda Creighton for that matter, yes. uh, the Renewa party full of old Fine Gael blood mm-hmm. uh, and opposed to abortion. Yes, we'll see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, moving from that then, uh, if we can, to the... The homeless issue. We've mm. had a lot of comments in about that. A mix of them. And Michael Shane says that he finds it hard to have sympathy with the family in this situation that were in the Garda station. And he feels that very often there's no talk about the father in this situation. And he says he just finds it hard to have sympathy. Another listener, though, says that you'd have to be very hard hearted not to feel sorry for the children in particular. Mm. No child should have to sleep on a hard chair in a Garda station, says Peter. A Garda station is for criminals, not for children. Okay, who, who was the other caller? Richie, was it? Shane. Oh, Shane. 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 Yeah. And, and who does Shane not have sympathy for? The father, is it? Yeah, well, he just says he, he finds it hard to have sympathy for the situation. For the, situa- for, for, yes. for the, for the father's situation or, or the little children, the innocent children's situation? He, he couldn't have meant well, that, he, no. Well, I, I don't he, know. I think, I think that he said who, who would have six children without having a home for them? But, so, so yeah. do, but, but does that mean he doesn't feel sorry for a, a one-year-old child sleeping on a plastic chair in the middle of a guard station, uh, not knowing where they're going to sleep tomorrow night? I, I doubt I he know. Well, he says, right. I'm finding it hard to sympathise with this guard station family photo. Oh, okay. All right, thanks for, for letting us know, Shane. Uh, let's uh, go to the phones, because as you heard in the headlines, uh, a man and a woman have been released uh, from uh, Drogheda Garda Station. Two men uh, remain in custody. This is uh, following uh, the discovery of a gun on Ulster Lane, uh, which uh, happened late on Saturday night, early on Sunday morning. Uh, we're joined by Richie Culhan, who's a Fine Gael councillor, former member of the Special Branch. Good morning, Richie. Good morning, Michael. What do you know about this uh, particular uh, discovery? Um, well, very little, really, apart from what you know, Michael. Um, uh, four people were arrested uh, following a, a, an intelligence-led um, investigation into organised crime in Drogheda. Um, they were detained under Section 30 of the Offences Against the State Act in both Drogheda and in Dundalk. Mm. And um, it's, I, I, I believe now that two have been, have been released. My understanding was that... Uh, uh, a number of of those people would be brought before the courts in relation to bench warrants that were existing, um, uh, that were being executed. So they were, in actual fact, they were wanted these people anyway. And I, I take it you don't knock on a, a door. Uh, that it, it's no surprise uh, after knocking on a, a door that there's weapons inside. I take it that the guards were looking for something. Well, obviously, as I said, it was an intelligence-led investigation. Uh, they obviously had intelligence in relation to weapons at that house because they were supported by an armed response unit, um, <clears throat> which, of course, would be necessary uh, if, if you were to enter a house where there was firearms. Mm. Um, it's gratifying to know that, uh, Gareth, they are actually getting on top of organised crime uh, in the area, certainly in Drogheda, and I suppose it's, it points out the extent of the ruthlessness of these individuals mm. who are... Uh, you know, they're obviously carrying firearms and using firearms. Um, and, of course, this follows on from the, you know, the, the awful event that we had at uh, the Cement Road a number of, uh, or last week uh, or a couple of weeks ago when uh, uh, one individual was uh, 
seriously wounded and mm. perhaps and, very lucky to escape. And, and there's a development, it would seem, in relation to that. But uh, just to stay with Ulster Lane, I take it that residents will be very concerned to think that their neighbours had guns. Well, you know, Ulster Lane is a, is a predominantly a very, very nice, is a lovely area. The, the people that, are, that reside there have been there for many, many years. Uh, they're great neighbours. They're very decent, honest, honourable people. Um, and I'm sure, obviously, they'll be very concerned, you know, by the fact that uh, there was this type of behaviour uh, going on in, you know, right next door to them. It's a very small, close knit community in the Ulster Lane, and it, you know, and 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 older people uh, reside in the area, so that will. Obviously, um, I'm sure they're, they're they're very very concerned in relation to what was going on there, and mm. I suppose they're they're also along with being concerned, they're they're appreciative of, of the work that Ungarda Shikana are doing, you know, to counteract uh, this type of behaviour and mm. to bring these people before the courts. And everybody uh, concerned know. then, as you say, about uh, the gun and the attempted murder up at the halting site in Mel. Uh, development in that with another raid uh, on uh, this site over the weekend. Uh, last week, actually, it was Thursday of last week, uh, but uh, the Guardian issuing a, a press release on Friday evening outlining how they had seized €250,000 in cash and some cocaine. Yeah, and of course, again, you know, I mean, this is I mean, you, this, these things don't happen uh, on their own, Bath. You have, uh, as I said, you have intelligence coming in all the time that's been uh, collated and it's also been analysed. And uh, the, the operations such as these then are put in place um, from that intelligence. And uh, it's it, again, it's gratifying to know that, you know, a lot of money has been taken from these criminals. Uh, but again, it shows the extent of the amount of money that is being made by on a daily basis by these uh, these these uh, career criminals, and um, this will put a, a, a rather large dent in in the operation of this organisation or these these individuals um, who are applying their their, their trade around Drogheda and the northeast. Okay. Um, and, just and not adds. alone that, I mean, of course, there is always there is an obvious connection also between other crime gangs from from, from Dublin City and indeed the north of Dublin. Um, you know, uh, uh, so so they're, they're, it's it's all interconnected, mm. and um, but as I said, you know, two hundred fifty thousand pounds will put a large dent in their and their operation, and hopefully they. they there'll be more seizures to follow. That's from their perspective, from their neighbours' perspective, I suppose uh, this just adds uh, to the ongoing concerns about uh, the activity of residents of uh, that particular halting site, but we leave it there for the moment. Thanks, Richie Culhan, indeed, for joining us as always. Richie's a Fine Gael councillor and a former member of uh, the special branch. Marie, what else have people been saying to you today? A couple of more on the homeless situation. Liz from Drogheda was listening into the interview with Father Peter McFerry and says that she really admires him and other campaigners for trying to keep the government on its toes. She fears that the country would be in an even worse crisis if it wasn't for campaigners like himself. Okay. We also had uh, a call from Eileen and Eileen says that it's not just when the Pope uh, visits Ireland that there is an accommodation problem. Mm. She says that whenever there is a big act in Dublin performing or there's a huge big international game on and there's Mm -hmm. a demand for hotel places that it happens also but you don't really hear much about it then. So that was her thoughts on it. Okay, maybe it's not quite as ironic but yeah, I think uh, the point is well made, Jim. 
Um, Mary was in touch and she says that she heard Fergus O'Dowd talking about a general election and there's also talk about a presidential election and she is referring to the Gavin Duffy signs that were mentioned on the news in Drogheda for the FLA and she says just looking at the, the posters or the signs that she doesn't think she could stomach one election never mind two. Okay well careful <laughs> careful. Another listener was on on the same topic um, says Michael you're reasonable this was a text in you're reasonable and level-headed person, am I right to feel insulted at Gavin Duffy's welcome signs to Drogheda? I find the volunteers and community played such a huge part in the FLA and preparing the town and now it has been spoiled. The visual area has been spoiled with this signage. Okay, well, if uh, somebody is looking for publicity, they're welcome to pay for it. Uh, I'm not going to add to what's been said. Charlie from Navin finally says that uh, he was interested in the story you had, um, you relayed, Michael, during your interview with Sarah Barden mm. about the Fine Gael press office phoning. Mm. And you remember that well, I'm sure. I do indeed, because yeah. <laughs> I was on the receiving mm. end of the call. And he says, just in the sense of democracy, he said it, it just sparked an interest yeah. in him because he's wondering, does it happen regularly that press offices, offices would try to dictate to the media? Mm. And he says, if so, I'm only assuming that your station doesn't let them dictate. Oh, no, no, no. I don't think we've ever uh, accepted anything. Uh, I, I mean, I think we've always been transparent in what we've agreed with people. If I, And I don't remember a time where we've agreed to something at somebody else's insistence, but if we have agreed to it, I'm sure we've come on and said we've agreed to it, but yes. uh, I don't think uh, we've uh, let people dictate the terms. We invite people onto the programme. Sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no, uh, and if they accept our invitation, that's grand. And if they don't, uh, quite often we uh, make that people uh, aware that they've declined our invitation. But I think that's where it starts and ends. He was just wondering, you wonder how much of this goes on around the country. Yeah, uh, well, I don't know. We can only speak for ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to make comment on the programme today, as always, you're welcome to ring us. You can ring Marie now on 185715958 or text us on 086 1800 658. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. In 2011, the VAT rate for the hospitality sector was reduced from 13.5% to 9%. Uh, this was uh, to help help sector struggling uh, to stay alive at the time uh, and it was seen as a jobs initiative uh, to encourage growth and employment in the sector but now the economy is recovering we're at almost full Uh, employment hotels and restaurants and so on are booming and there are calls to reduce the the incentive that is given to this sector and uh, to increase, to restore the rate to 13.5%. As you know, in uh, the budget in October, the government will have about $800 million to spend, but it could increase that by $500 million if it was to do that. And we'll talk about this now with Michael Taft of uh, the Unite Trade Union and Adrian Cummins, who's Chief Executive with the Restaurants Association of Ireland. Adrian Cummins, there's an awful lot of bad things happening in the country that the government could spend this money on, why should they not restore the rate to 13.5%? Well, the VAT rate is doing its job. It's the correct rate for VAT when you compare it to the rest of Europe. Uh, the average in Europe is 10% or less. Uh, some rates are nearly down as far as uh, 5% for VAT for the hospitality tourism industry. And uh, we've created a hell of a amount of jobs 
over the last number of years, nearly 80,000 jobs uh, between full and part-time. And many businesses and listeners to your programme now will say to themselves, why do we need to increase this fat rate when we're still uh, finding it difficult to keep a business afloat? The cost of uh, doing business in this country is disproportionate at the moment. And, uh, and there are certain people looking to increase this fat rate, which will no doubt, no doubt affect the border and midland areas for business. Yeah, but you can't get a booking in a restaurant. Of course you can get a booking in a restaurant. You, you mightn't get a booking on a Saturday night, but you can get a booking on a Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in a restaurant. That's nearly five out of seven days in the week, and you, get, you will be able to get a booking in a restaurant. I think those those arguments that have been thrown out that you can't get a booking on a Saturday night, um, fair enough, you can't. But there's a lot of nights where the businesses are actually closed because they don't have enough customers to keep their doors open. Yeah, and they charge exorbitant prices and pay their staff nothing. That's another uh, another argument being thrown by the by the uh, trade union movement that uh, where, where the staff are not being paid uh, paid well. Well, in fact. We are one of the best payers uh, when you benchmark Ireland against the rest of the European uh, Union. It's five euros an hour in Spain. It is now 9.80. We've had a 25% increase in the minimum wage, which in fact is a 25% wage inflation in our sector since 2011 when the VAT rate was reduced. Mm. So I take that, that argument with a pinch of salt. Yeah, and what about the argument uh, that the hospitality sector has increased pay by 5.8% over the last decade compared to 8.1% for the rest of workers in this country? Don't agree with it whatsoever because if at the moment you can't get a chef in this country uh, and chefs are on huge demand where they can command whatever wage that they want, they can walk out of business, walk into another and get a pay rise. That, that's, to me, there's a lot of, of commentary out there, uh, uh, but mostly from the trade union movement, which is, and what they're trying to do is they're playing a game. They want us to get into these uh, joint labour committees, which were found unconstitutional in 2011. And, uh, and, mm. and, uh, and abolished uh, and reintroduced it in a way that was deemed to be constitutional. Let's uh, get some game playing from Michael Taft now. Uh, Michael, uh, apologies uh, for the introduction. I believe you're a research officer with SIP2 now and uh, hope you'll forgive me. Old habits die hard. Uh, you're very welcome and thanks uh, for joining Thank us. Uh, what, what do you make of the arguments that Adrian Cummins has been making? Well, let's take two arguments. First, on uh, the VAT rates uh, there in the hospitality sector. Uh, there are only about uh, eight or nine countries with a VAT rate uh, in hospitality of less than uh, uh, 13%. I mean, in the UK, the VAT rate uh, on the restaurants is 20%. Uh, Some place like Greece, which is a very popular tourist destination, is 24%. Portugal is 13%. Uh, you know, so if we went back up to 13, 13 and a half percent, uh, we would uh, still be relatively low compared to other countries. But let's just nail this thing about w- wages. Uh, the Restaurant Association constantly comes out with the minimum wage, and yet there are countries uh, in our peer group, you know, other high-income countries like Denmark, Austria, Finland, Sweden, they don't even have a statutory minimum wage. But in Denmark, workers in the hospitality sector would be paid five euros more an hour than here. In Austria and Finland, four euros more. Uh, even in France, where they have a minimum wage which is very similar to us, 
workers there would be paid four euros more an hour. What is the reason for that? It's because in those countries, employers sit down with employees and collectively, collectively bargain wages and working conditions across the sector. And these are uh, countries that have, you know, that have uh, uh, a strong hospitality sector, have uh, profit-making uh, restaurants. But they sit down, they negotiate with the, uh, uh, the workers. Here in Ireland, the Restaurant Association refuses to do so, even though, as you rightly pointed out, not only did the, the, the Doyle reconstitute the joint labor committees, they did so on a unanimous vote. And it's not that many occasions where you get a unanimous vote uh, uh, in the Doyle. So the Restaurant Association is ignoring its workers. It's ignoring, uh, you know, the unanimous decision uh, uh, of the Doyle. And when you go back to 2011, and you were correct, in 2011, the hospitality sector mm. was in a very bad state. Yep. Uh, now, so the government took uh, a correct action of reducing the VAT rate uh, to try to stimulate demand. It was a kind of a fiscal demand, if you will. Over two and a half billion euros over that period has been spent on the reduction of the VAT rate. Mm. Uh, and yet, uh, but who was the main beneficiary? Employers have more than trebled their profits across the sector over that period. And as you said, workers have only gotten a 6% pay increase. Okay. That's a real imbalance. But, but I, I mean, are, 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 are you sure? Because uh, I, I think in Denmark there actually is a minimum wage, uh, which would be around 17, 18 euro an hour. So perhaps they're just on minimum pay there. No, no, there's no, there's no minimum wage in Denmark. These are countries with very strong collective bargaining structures. Mm. And what they do is they do set a minimum wage, but that's negotiated sector by sector. So it may well be that the minimum wage in Denmark in the hospitality sector is 19 euros an hour. Okay. But they do so because they bargain between employers and employees. It's not something that's passed by their legislature down into the economy. So all we're asking for is employers to sit down with workers and their representatives and negotiate uh, wages and working okay, if they pay, so that if they, if they paid their workers more, would you be happy if uh, they remained uh, on this 9% rate? Well, no, the 9% uh, has, done it, has done its job. Okay. I mean, you know, I mean, Ad- it's, Ad- don't forget, it's, we're spending nearly 500 million euros a year in public subsidy to keep that rate low. Okay, well that's a pretty strong criticism, Adrian Cummins. Uh, You're being asked uh, not uh, just to accept the rate being restored to 13.5%, but also to pay your workers a a decent wage. I said to you earlier on in the interview that this is a proxy war by the the trade union movement. They don't give a damn about increasing the minimum wage or the the VAT rate. What they want to do is force employers into the labour court for these joint labour committees. That's their in game. They have no, I mean, the, the, the pause by the by Michael there, that he couldn't answer the question, whether they'd be happy with the battery staying at 9% if we went, if, if wages went up. That gives you the answer. This is all about the trade union movement getting more money for employees. And fair enough, off with them and trying to do that. What we're trying to do is be competitive, mm. keep our doors open and keep our staff employed. And that's what we're trying to do. 500 million euro, though, could build a lot of houses, for example. 500 million euro is the difference between the 9 and the 13. But nobody has come out with the, with the, with the, with the figure that that has brought in another 1.2 billion each year in extra taxation. 
for the government because of the extra uh, activity in the, in, in, in the sector around hospitality. And also, is the trade union movement willing to keep the 9% for newspapers, for hairdressers, for the horse racing industry, and for and for the other sectors that are involved? Okay, let Michael Taft just uh, respond to that last point, and then I have to wrap up then. Michael Taft. Well, we want the VAT rate to be restored to uh, 13.5% so that we can use that extra money across the board to, 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 uh, uh, to address many of the uh, social and economic deficits that we are still suffering from. And I'll just say this in conclusion. Yes, we are absolutely uh, committed to increasing the pay and working conditions of workers in the hospitality sector, many of whom, many of whom earn below the living wage. Many have to rely on family income supplement, another public subsidy, uh, who are working under precarious contracts. Uh, it is a terrible way to treat the people, the chefs, the floor staff, the dishwashers, the administrators, the people who produce the, the services okay. for people. It's a terrible way to treat people. Okay. All we're asking is sit down and talk. Thank you I don't both. know what the problem is with that. Thank you both for joining us uh, this morning. Michael Taft, Research Officer with the SIPTU Trade Union, and Adrian Cummins, who's a Chief Executive of the Restaurants Association of Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, Pope Francis will be here in less uh, than a fortnight uh, for the World Meeting of Families, uh, but when Francis gives Mass in uh, the Phoenix Park on Sunday fortnight, uh, rally in solidarity with victims of clerical sexual abuse will be held at the Garden of Remembrance. This is at three o'clock and it's been organised by Colm O'Gorman. Colm, as you know, is the director of Amnesty International. But one time he sued the Pope. His story was told in a BBC documentary suing the Pope in 2002, which led to the Ferns Inquiry. Colm then went on to establish the support group one and four and he joins us on the line this morning. Good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us as always. There's been a lot of criticism over all of the years uh, that you've been talking about your own experience and uh, the abuse uh, that was handed down to you by Father Sean Fortune uh, in terms of how the Vatican dealt with it, covered it up and moved people along. Francis was seen when he assumed his role as Pope to be different than his predecessors and gave hope, I think, to many victims. Uh, Many victims are now feeling very isolated and left out of uh, the occasion that we'll see the first visit of a Pope to this country in over 40 years. Uh, Why this protest, though, despite uh, what you've been hearing uh, about the interaction with Jeremy Hearn and Mary McAleese? uh, What does it make uh, in terms of a a difference to you at this stage? Surely this is old ground that we're going over. Good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me on, as always. I should start by saying that I'm, I'm speaking, obviously, in a personal capacity. This isn't an Amnesty International organized event. I'm, I'm doing it because I've been asked to do it and was approached to do it by a, a number of people who were getting very very concerned and very upset by how uh, this visit seemed to be rolling ahead in a way that sought, that sought to deny, actually, what's happened here in Ireland now over many decades and what's been revealed over the last couple. And I also just want to make it very clear that this isn't a protest per se. I mean, you know, half a million people are going to go to the Phoenix Park at exactly the same time to manifest and celebrate their faith. And that's a joyful occasion for them and one that I respect. Uh, and they should be absolutely free to do that. And this is no mark of disrespect to them. Rather, it's about ensuring 
that as all of that happens and as papal flags are being hung from masts and people are, are, are lining the, the, the roads to welcome the Pope, and that, again, they're perfectly entitled to do that, we don't forget the harm that's been done to so many people in a whole variety of ways because of the actions, not of the faith, but of the institution of the Roman Catholic Church. And you've referenced my own experiences of abuse. I'm very conscious of the fact that the priest who abused me also abused people in the area that, that, that the station broadcasts in. So there'll be people listening to this who suffered harm in the same way that I did at the hands of the same person, despite the fact that the church knew he was a child abuser before they ordained him, despite the fact that, that complaints went to bishops and ultimately to the Holy See, who confirmed that they were aware of the complaints and concerns. He remained in ministry until I went to the guards in 1995 and continued to rape and abuse with impunity. Uh, and Sean Forsyth was up in Phoenix Park, that, wasn't he? Where Boy Scout, wasn't he up in the Phoenix Park with Boy Scouts when John Paul visited? Yeah, mm. yeah he was. I mean, I was, mm. I was 13 when the Pope was here in 1979, um, um, and I didn't get to go. Um, I was annoyed that I didn't get to go to. My elder brother and elder sister did. I didn't for family reasons. Um, and I mean, like everybody else uh, at that time, like every other 13-year-old, the church was at the centre of my life. I sang in, in the folk group in Mass every Sunday. I went to a Christian Brothers school. The youth group I went to was a Catholic youth group that met in a convent. You know, literally the church was in every part of my life and I believed uh, um, uh, uh, in it as uh, an institution that was about good and that would be good for everybody. I remember hearing John Paul II, you know, that, that, that quote of his booming accented voice going out across the youth mass in, in, in Galway when he said, young people of Ireland, I love you, and I believed him. And that was a time when, you know, we didn't hear people tell us that they loved us in that way. Young people didn't. Not in that way, not in that context. It was a hugely uh, um, significant moment, I think, for many of us who were, who were of that age at that time. But 18 months after that, I was raped for the first time by a priest. And at the same time during that visit, Father Sean Fortune, the priest who abused me for two and a half years, he was in the Phoenix Park. He'd been ordained four months earlier, despite the fact that the church knew he was a child abuser. Complaints had come in while he was a seminary that he'd abused mm. a group of Boy Scouts. The, Bo the Scouting Association banned him from the Scouts for Life. The church ordained him a priest and sent him off up to Belfast to the Holy Rosary Parish, where he did what? Founded a scouting troop of his own to work his way around the ban. And my understanding is he was in the Phoenix Park with a group of those scouts on that day back in 1979. Okay. So, I mean, my, my, my point would be that that's just one element of, 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 I mean, that's just one of many tens of thousands of stories of people who've been mm. harmed by the willful, deliberate collusion, facilitation and cover-up of the crimes of clergy. Um, we spend 82 million euros of, 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 our, of our money, of our republic's money, investigating what happened in institutions. They are the gravest, most systemic human rights violations in the history of this state. Uh, as taxpayers, you know, the, the state is, is paying 1.6 billion euros in an effort to redress that harm, and it can never do it, but it's an effort. And the church will have contributed just over 200 million. And then last week we hear, and this is... This, is, this has truly got global significance, what we found out last week. In 2003 and 2004, when I was talking about a cover-up, people looked at me like I was a swivel-head loon. Um, and the church denied it vociferously. They said abuse wasn't such an issue, that they were on a learning curve, that they didn't understand the nature of such things, that, that was all, they were all straightforward lies and deceits on the part of, of bishops, cardinals, mm -hmm. and yes, even popes. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we find out last week that they were trying to enter into a legally binding agreement under inter international law with the Irish state to bury evidence in diocesan archives of crimes committed against Irish children and women, and trying to get the Irish taxpayer to again pick up the tab for the cost of the harm that they've done by, getting, by trying to get the state to indemnify them 
um, uh, against uh, claims for damages that might be might be taken by people like me. Now, that's not me saying that. That's a former president who said that, Mary McAleese, in a meeting with the, the, the most senior Vatican diplomat, Cardinal Sedano, who's the Vatican Secretary of State. And exactly the same person had a meeting with Dermot O'Hearn when he was Minister for Foreign Affairs trying to get that indemnity deal. So in two weeks' time, we're going to welcome a religious leader to this country. Absolutely. We're also going to welcome the head of state of a state that is directly implicated in the the most serious and systemic human rights violations in the history of this republic, the rape and abuse and violation of tens of thousands of Irish women and children, and who sought to cover up those crimes and protect itself. Now, what have we got to say to that head of state? I think we have to say something. And at the very least, we have to stand stand in solidarity in a dignified way, in a respectful way, with people who have been harmed as a consequence of that. And that's what the event okay. in, the gardens of, in the Garden of Remembrance is about. And people will read your interview in uh, the Daily Star today and you're calling on uh, the Taoiseach uh, to meet with Pope Francis and to hold him to account. I mean, the Taoiseach has said that he's going to raise a number of issues. The treatment of LGBT people is one that he highlighted. Actually, I mean, I can understand why he might want to raise that, but I think the abuse issues, the harm that's been done to generations of Irish children and women, communities and families who've been devastated by the crimes and cover-ups perpetrated by the Roman Catholic Church at the highest possible level, all the way, the, all the way to the Vatican. Those are the issues that he should... He, that's the issue that he must absolutely raise, and he must ask the Pope to tell the truth and to be properly accountable. What does that mean? Well, the first thing it means is acknowledging the simple, now proven fact of the cover-up that was orchestrated by the Vatican and being prepared to be accountable for that. What about the organisers of the World Meeting of Families? Uh, There's questions about uh, the involvement of uh, three significant uh, people, three cardinals. Yeah, I mean, there are three cardinals who are involved in the World Meeting of Families who have grave questions to answer about their handling of the cover-up of abuse. But then, you know, this is one event. I mean, we, 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 we move from, and I, when I say we, I mean that in a global sense, not just us here in Ireland. We move from these moments of episodic outrage where we, get, where we kind of look at this and, and get irritated. But actually, if we look at the systemic history here, you said at the beginning that Francis was seen as somebody who would be different. Mm. Well, actually, I think it's three of the most powerful positions that he appointed cardinals to in the Vatican involved, Vaticans who, uh, involved cardinals who were directly implicated in cover-up and some even themselves faced allegations of abuse. Cardinal Pell, who was the former Archbishop of Sydney, for years has faced allegations and charges of very significant cover-ups there and as we now know is back in Australia fighting criminal charges where it's alleged that he himself directly uh, committed and perpetrated sexual assaults. And since 2001 actually since much earlier, but it was reaffirmed in 2001, the Vatican has made it clear that all allegations uh, or suspicions of a cleric or priest who has abused a child have to be notified to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, one of the main departments in the Vatican, who will, who has ex, which has exclusive competence for deciding what happens next. So what does that mean? That means since at least 2001, but actually much, much earlier in church law, uh, and the Vatican has had detailed knowledge of all of these cases when they emerged. That had to include the concerns about Sydney, the concerns about Cardinal Pell, and yet Francis appoints him to the third most important position in the Vatican. And then last year, when he went to Chile, which has been convulsed mm. by scandals of child sexual abuse by priests there, um, he went to Chile last year. Uh, there were concerns about the appointment of a bishop who was directly, again, seriously implicated in the cover-ups, who was protecting abusers. And um, the Pope 
would have known from the records at the Vatican. The Vatican itself carried out an investigation into those cases in 2011. He went to Chile. A victim spoke out against the cover-up and against the appointment of this, of this bishop. And the Pope, what did he do? Did he say, yes, we haven't done this very well? No, he, he attacked the victims and accused them of slander. And only when that went badly wrong for him and there was huge public kickback against it, did he apologise for that. And since then, we've seen the resignation of bishops. Mm. And the point is... They knew all of this before he went to Chile. If those bishops needed not to be in those jobs before the Pope went to Chile, they shouldn't have been in them then. It shouldn't have taken victims being prepared to speak out and challenge the church. It shouldn't have taken the media and the public at large to get angry and upset when the, when the Pope or when the church attacks victims of abuse. They should be acting uh, in a way that's grounded in the principles of truth justice, love and humanity. And they're not. They're still not. In other words, this is not historical. This is not remotely historical, no. And, I mean, the tragedy that we all have to face up to, I think, and the responsibility that we have to take, given what we know about the conduct, again, not of the faith, but of the institutional church, of the, of the political and governance arm of the church, the Vatican and the hierarchy, including its bishops. Mm. The responsibility that we have to take then is acknowledging the fact that this institution remains responsible for the health, well-being and welfare of tens of millions of the most vulnerable children in the world. And only and only where it's been forced, and generally that's in developed uh, countries with a with a with a, a significant media and independent media and victims who've been prepared to speak out. Only where the, only where they've been put under pressure have we seen any kind of change, and we can't be confident that that change runs deep. All right, uh, and uh, what are you hearing from people? What are you expecting uh, in terms of your own event? As you say, about a half a million are expected in the park. How many at the Garden of Remembrance would you expect? When, when I agreed to, to do this, it was because the one thing I didn't want to do um, was to have people sitting at home, watching all of this happening, listening to the playback from 1979 with a Pope saying, young people of Ireland, I love you, and thinking about what that has come to mean to them in their lives and the harm that they've suffered. I also didn't want people uh, to find themselves going along to a protest that was you know, behind crash barriers miles away from the Pope uh, um, and that marginalised people further. What I wanted to do was to create a space where people could come along in solidarity away from what was happening in a respectful way and be together. That's the point of this. If 100 people came to it because they needed to be there, that's exactly what it would need it to be. As of now, um, several thousand people have registered an interest in being there. Um, but it's not about numbers. It's about making sure that that space exists for people. OK, thank you for joining us as always. Colin O'Gorman speaking to us in a, a personal capacity. Uh, you'll know him otherwise as uh, the director of Amnesty International Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, as you know, seven post offices in County Meath are on uh, the list of 161 nationwide uh, expected uh, to close as a result of on post accepting applications uh, for a voluntary retirement scheme. Uh, there's moves in Coroner Ross uh, to try and turn that decision around. And Maria Murphy of the Save Coroner Ross Post Office Committee joins us. Maria, good morning. Uh, you're to hold a public meeting on Thursday. That's correct, Michael. Good morning. How are you? Yes, Michael, I suppose in Carna Ross, just like the other areas in County Mead, we're very, very concerned about the closure of our local post office, which is central to our community. It's 
in Carnaross, I suppose, like in most other rural areas, the post office is just a means of sending letters and posting letters or collecting your pension. It's become, you know, a community outlet. It's a social focal point for a lot of, particularly the elderly in our area, mm. who for some Friday morning's visit to the post office could be the highlight of the week, you know, to get in, to meet people, yeah. have the chat. And in our case, the post office is also the local shop. So when people come in to collect their pensions or whatever, they'll go to get their groceries, they'll have a chat with people, find out what's happening in the area. And, you know, and a lot of these people will get lifts to our post office. Mm. And it's opening, uh, open and operational at the moment? It is open and operational at the moment. And as you said there just a moment ago, a lot of postmasters were in negotiations, you know, to accept retirement packages, but we're slightly different than Colonel Ross. Our local postmaster, Mr. Raymond Gibney, passed away a number of weeks ago. And with that, the postmaster role uh, goes with the person. But his family, who have run the post office for the last 107 years, the post office is um, 107 years in operation now in Carnaross, have applied to retain the postmaster's licence, but have been refused and been only given it in an interim capacity. Okay. Now, so uh-huh. it is slightly, slightly different, you know. Mm, so, but, so, so, so they're they're running the post office now. Since, they are running the post office yeah. at the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, even over the last number of weeks, you know, in Carnaross, since the introduction of, and I suppose you've heard about the new um, privatisation of parking in, in, in Kells, and it's made life a little bit more difficult for pensioners and whatever to get to the post office. You know, mm. there's very limited parking in Kells, and even the post office in Carnaross at the moment, the footfall has increased dramatically for posting for people are coming out to Carnaross to send their mm. posts. And we you'd notice now, and they've told me in the post office, that businesses from the local business park, which is located between Kells and Carnaross, the Kells business park, are all coming out to Carnaross now where they can pull up outside the door, bring in their parcels, bring in their posts. It's the convenience and the ease of the service. And the family obviously believe uh, that the business is viable. They do indeed. Or otherwise, I'm sure they, you know, I spoke to them before we started this campaign and they said, hand on heart, if they got the licence, they would go ahead and keep the post office open. And I'm sure at that stage, if they felt that it wasn't viable, they would have said so and they wouldn't have let us go ahead and set up the Save Ross post office campaign. Mm. And uh, obviously it's something uh, that uh, has been part of uh, the family and uh, that uh, they see it as part of the former postmaster's legacy. Well, absolutely. And this is it. I suppose I myself, I'm only living in Carnaross 14 years, but the first thing you notice when you come to Carnaross is the sense of community spirit in the area. And both Eamon and Mary Gibney in the local shop and post office were central to this. You go in, they'd make everybody feel welcome. Nothing was too much trouble. You see people going in there, you know, they might not have to mm. the need, you know, for the services, but they would guide them through everything and work with them. And there's two girls working in the post office now at the moment whose jobs, you know, if the post office closes and the footfall reduces in the shop, cannot be guaranteed, you know, and mm. these girls provide, you know, an amazing are they full, service. Are, are they full-time? Yes, the girls between the shop and the post office, yes, the girls. God, that's a relatively busy post office then, isn't it? It is very busy. Like, there's a lot of community groups that use the post office as mm. well for their um, savings accounts and their current accounts. Mm. And, um, like, it's local meals on wheels, community text alert, Carner Ross private place, just to name but a few. Mm. And these are all volunteers to go in there to do their business now and to give up their time to go out maybe to deliver meals in the community and whatever. And it'd be very hard to ask these people to give up further time to go into Kells to try to pay parking, to queue in the post office mm. where the queues are quite long or whatever. You know, when they're already giving up time 
And, and I and take it expense. that the post office business promotes the shop and probably vice versa, but I'm wondering if uh, there is a, a loss-making situation, uh, that that's one that can be absorbed by the shop. Well, this is the thing, and this is something I suppose, which, you know, this has only been sprung upon us in the last couple of weeks, and we haven't had time to get all our facts and statistics together. But, you know, this post office in itself will bring in such a footfall there. You the local school. People go in there, you know, to do their business when they're dropping mm. off children, picking them up. You know, people go in. This, they, they offer the full range of services in Carnaroth Post Office, from pension payments to children's allowance, social welfare payments. At the moment, are very busy with Passport Express because the meet pilgrimage to Lourdes is coming up in September, so there'll be a lot of people in the area attending you know, mm. or going on that pilgrimage. Guard the fines. The speed van is permanently on the bridge between Carnaroth and Kells, so lots of locals and others in between get caught out okay. be, <laughs> you know, to the post office to pay their fines there. The TV renewal, you know, mm. all for one voucher. Presence for people, you don't have to go into Kells. It's very, very handy. You know, it's the lifeblood of a rural community. Okay, well, two full-time uh, employees uh, tells a story in itself. Uh, you're asking people to meet with you on Thursday at 8 well, o'clock in the Carner Ross Inn. At Thursday night at 8 o'clock in the Carner Ross Inn, we have petitions. I have invited all political parties and representatives to attend. Some have got back and confirmed their attendance, which is great, but we believe, you know, that people have a voice and if we don't do something now, we're just letting a service which is intricate and essential, essential to our community to be closed you know, without a fight and we don't intend to go down without making our views known anyway and lobbying all political parties. And all right. Thanks, we're hoping Maria. it's not too late. <laughs> Thank you, Maria. I've run out of time. Thank you indeed. Maria Murphy brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.